When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, it's Dan Lobby. Welcome to the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. We have a special edition of the podcast today. Joe Thomas joins Mary Kay Cabot and they cover a wide range of topics over the next hour. From Joe's bid to make the Hall of Fame, he's eligible for the first time. And Mary Kay, of course, will be one of the people voting on this class to his family, how they helped him get through some of the mental health struggles he dealt with towards the end of his career as the losing piled up. His time with Johnny Manziel, Justin Gilbert, and Josh Gordon. That's a you, you got to listen to that part for sure. All the quarterbacks that he played with throughout his career. His thoughts on Joel Betonio and Betonio potentially as a future Hall of Famer and all sorts of other things. So enough of me. Here's Mary Kay Cabot's interview with Joe Thomas. Well, I am so happy to be joined today by the great Joe Thomas. How are you doing today, Joe? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show, MK. Yeah. Hey, you know, it just occurred to me. I remember uh, the day that you retired and I looked ahead and I was thinking, geez, five years from now, Mm -hmm. I'm going to have the opportunity to vote for Joe Thomas to be in the Hall of Fame. And it seemed like it was so far out Mm -hmm. and it was going to be, you know, so far down the road. It seems like it came so fast, didn't it? It did. Honestly, it feels like it was just yesterday that I announced my retirement and stepped away. And I think in my head, I'm I'm closing my eyes and I still get those dreams occasionally that I'm like late for practice and I need to like quick get there and put my shoes on and get ready to get out on the field because my team needs me. Um, but I guess that's just the way the world works. Like the the days they crawl by. And the years they fly by. And that's certainly been the case since I've retired. And now I'm eligible for the Hall of Fame. And and how does it feel? I mean, I remember standing right in front of you that very day uh, when you were a rookie and, you know, and asking you about your goals and dreams. Mm-hmm. And and what did you tell us that day? I said, I want to be in the Hall of Fame. And I remember thinking like, yeah, shouldn't every player that plays this game that's a rookie dream of someday being great enough to be in the Hall of Fame? Uh, but there was a few people that were surprised that I would make such a bold claim. Uh, and it feels good to sit here and say, you know what? I wasn't too far off. Not yet, at least. Well, I wasn't one of those people that doubted you, <laughs> that day, Joe. I firmly believed in you. And I remember I, I remember that encounter vividly. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, wow, he is so confident about this. <laughs> I've heard other people say it, not many. I've heard other people say it when they were rookies, um, but I really believed that you were going to do it. There was no doubt in your mind. There was really no doubt in their mind was in your mind. Was there? No, I was really serious. I mean, I, I had goals in mind and I had short-term goals and I had medium and then I had long-term goals. And my short-term goal was 
hey, I just want to be a starter. And I think everybody probably that was listening was like, well, no, duh, you're going to be a starter. Probably like tomorrow, you're the third overall pick as an offensive lineman. Of course, you're going to be a starter no matter what you do. Like your draft position means you're going to be a starter. But in my head, it was like, that was the first step in the process. And I wanted everything to kind of be step-by-step approach. Want to be a starter, want to be a good starter that's reliable, want to make the Pro Bowl. And then if I do that enough times, like my dream is to be in the Hall of Fame. And I feel like that's a realistic goal. And in my head, it was this, it was just as easy as becoming a starter, right? Because it's just that step-by-step process, just one day at a time. Uh, but now that I look back on it and I appreciate how challenging things were along the way, uh, it may have been a big goal, <laughs> but I'm happy that I had big dreams at that time. Yes. Yes. It's so amazing to see it all play out and, and come to fruition. And, um, Obviously, we are taping this podcast before the process mm-hmm. uh, has happened, before I actually get to sit in that room and uh, and vote on you being in the Hall of Fame. But in the event that you do get that knock on the door this mm-hmm. year, uh, what what is that going to feel like? Do you, Have you thought about what your emotions might be like at that moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't let myself go to that headspace just yet. Um, but it is really cool. My kids are finally at an age where they're starting to understand some of the stuff. And some of the kids at their school are asking them like, Hey, I heard your dad was a finalist for the hall of fame. Is he going to get in? And my son, Jack actually just said it the other night. He's like, dad, I'm so sick of kids asking me at school if you're in the hall of fame yet. And I'm like, buddy, how do you think I feel? Like I, I have to <laughs> deal with all those same questions, but I'm like, you know what? But I get it. Like as a kid, everything's so new. And he was a year old when I retired. So all he knows of me is like retired dad that as at home all the time. And he's kind of wondering the same thing. Cause he's such a NFL fan. And I think the excitement that it's building within my family and starting to get real talking about, Hey, there's going to be a day here in the very near future where we're going to be at home. Potentially somebody comes to the door and tells me I'm a hall of famer. And then then it's real. And then the accelerator goes all the way to the floorboard because then we're going to the Super Bowl and we're trying to figure out all those plans and all the Hall of Fame celebrations. And um, it's starting to get really exciting just thinking about it. Yeah. Well, you know, of course, in my mind and in the minds of so many others, you are a slam dunk first <laughs> ballot Hall of Famer. And, you know, I've been in those rooms for a while and and doing this for, for a while. Uh, and you are a slam dunk Hall of Famer in my mm-hmm. mind. So I really, really hope it turns out that way. There are times where, uh, you know, things don't go exactly as mm-hmm. uh, as hoped or expected in the room. But of course, uh, you definitely deserve it. And that is what we are hoping for and pulling for. And I've been thinking about this a little bit. Uh, when we sit in the room and we when, and we hear uh, the presentation for Joe Thomas, Tony Grossi is going to uh, get started and give the presentation on you. And then I will chime in with, uh, you know, some of my own thoughts. And that's sometimes that's just how the way it goes, because he's, you know, the more veteran uh, person in the room out of the two of us. And, you know, we could split it up. But anyways, we will both have some things to say. And uh, and I was just wondering, as I think about this, if you know, what would you want? What would you want someone to say about you uh, if they were trying to tell a room full of 49 voters about you? What would you want them to know? If there was only one sentence that you had to say, I would hope you would say, 
for 10,363 consecutive plays over 10 and a half seasons. Joe Thomas showed up the best version of himself for his teammates to give them and his team the best chance to win. And if, if you only get one sentence, I hope that's what you can leave him with. That's awesome. That's amazing. Now, just so you know how the process goes, you, you actually get like about two sentences. <laughs> you get two sentences. Yeah. Uh, you do get, they put a timer. I mean, they actually really? put it. Have you heard anything about this? No, I, you know, I've purposely a little bit tried not to dive too much into the process because yeah. I worried about like putting my mind, I don't control it. Right. Everything that I've done that makes me a hall of famer has been in the barn for five years ago. Um, yeah. And so there's nothing that's going to change at this point. And I didn't want like to think about it too much and to yeah. become like super nervous and stressed about every little detail that happens because what happens happens at this point, but I am still interested in how those things go down now that you're willing to open up. Yeah. Well, I hope I'm not uh, taking your mind to places where you don't no. want to go yet. So I, you know, I apologize mm -hmm. in advance for that, but I mean, at some point you're going to be in the hall of fame, mm -hmm. hopefully it'll be this year, but the way the process works is that, uh, the presenter gets five minutes uh, for each person that um, that gets presented uh, for the modern era finalists. And they actually put like a big clock up there. So you mm. are on the clock. Mm. And, you know, it, it is not, you know, well received if you go over that five minutes mm -hmm. because everyone deserves their, you know, equal time. But yeah. then, you, then, then it opens up to the floor and mm. anybody can say anything that they want after that initial presentation and you can you know you can hand out um you know statistics and and different things like that um you can kind of do it in any way that you want and i will just tell you that you're in phenomenal hands uh with tony grossi giving the initial presentation because he's really really good at this awesome. i mean re he's really good at this and um and then of course like i said i will um i will have my own little mini uh presentation presentation i'll chime in after that that's kind of how we did it for clay matthews and we worked really hard for Clay, because we, of course, believe that Clay Matthews deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And I hope someday yeah. that he does get in. But uh, it'll be a little bit easier, easier sell with you. Um, but um, but we're looking forward to it. I mean, we have been looking forward to this moment for a long, long time. It's so exciting to be in the room, Joe. I mean, to be in the room and really, uh, you know, helping determine the fate of the greatest of the great in the NFL it's such an honor. I mean, it is such an honor. And you want to talk about being nervous. <laughs> it, it really is something. I mean, I'm in awe of the whole process and so grateful, so grateful that I get to be a part of, uh, you know, helping you get into the Hall of Fame. So I can't wait. I, for one, absolutely cannot wait. It's so exciting. Um, so we'll see how, you know, how that all goes. And in the event that it, it that it is this year, um, I'm going to be right there, you know, at the NFL honors, you know, just every step of the way and really looking forward to all that. So mm -hmm. let's, uh, you know, fingers crossed. Um, but just wanted to, to reflect a little bit on some things. Um, in addition to not believing that this five years has gone by so fast, mm -hmm. how about just 
that the 15 years have gone by. So, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I mean, where did 15 years go? And how old are your all your kids now? Yeah, so my oldest is nine. So I've got nine, eight, six, and four, which it's crazy to think that my baby's four because she was born when we moved back to Wisconsin after I retired. So she has no memory of Cleveland other than when we come back because we come back a lot in the summer and in the fall during football season and uh, we maintain a house in the Cleveland area. So um, it is weird to think that she's like a big kid now, but she has yeah. no memory and she wasn't even alive during my football career, even the end when, uh, you know, the other kids were a little bit older. So like my oldest Logan, she has a couple memories of being at games, mostly just eating peanuts off the floor in the stadium. Uh, <laughs> not many memories of me on the field, but I, I keep trying to remind the kids of some of those moments so that even if they don't actually remember those moments, like hopefully 20 years from now, we've talked about it enough where they think they remember being there, even though they were like three years old and they probably really don't remember being there. Well, it's funny because I heard you on the radio this morning. I just so happened to be kind of getting ready to do this podcast and I heard you on the radio and I was so happy to hear uh, that I am not the only one with a young child to drop an F-bomb. I was just so <laughs> yes. happy to hear uh. about it. Uh, because we, I, I I tell the funniest story about, uh, you know, when my son, I think he was 10, uh, he was 10 years old. And I was like, we were trying to get ready, you know, get him out the door, go to school or whatever he needed to go do some sporting event, whatever. And, um, and I was, you know, yapping at him like mothers do. And he just shot his head around at me and he said, just get me my effing bagel. But he used, oh, no. whole, yeah, he used the whole uh, word, of course. Yeah. And and so, of course, it stopped me dead in my tracks. But the funny part about it is everybody always asks me, what did you do? Yeah, right. Yeah, the next <laughs> and I question. always say, I got him his effing bagel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You knew that he meant business in that moment. Yeah, it's so funny. Like, yeah. being an offensive lineman, obviously, the language, the colorful language that line coaches use and that yes. you tend to use around your line mates, like, it's a lot different than the language you try to bring home. And surely there's a little bit of carryover. So I'm sure she heard it somewhere along <laughs> the way there. Uh, but still, that doesn't mean we're not trying to teach her. All right. There's a time and place. Like, I get it. Like, you're upset. You're emotional. But if you say that at school or around a lot of other adults, we're going to be in big time trouble. So let's try to keep that out of our mouth here until you're an offensive line coach someday, <laughs> maybe when you're in your 20s. Uh, yeah. And then... That's your time and place. Yes, very funny. Well, I know where Chris heard it. Every year when I would try to get the Christmas picture of the kids all lined up, <laughs> that's, when, that's when mommy always dropped the F. Yeah, that's always but, when I get the most upset during the year as well, <laughs> Christmas photo time. So, you know what? Let's stick with family for a minute, Joe, because um, I remember overhearing Annie a few years over the, you know, over the years, like on the day that you retired and you had your press conference. Mm -hmm. And I just can sense that she's really funny, that she's got a really good sense of humor. <laughs> it just seems like through all the ups and downs that you had in your career, and it was a stressful career. And the reason why I know that as well as anyone is because this has been a stressful team to cover as well. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. it, it's been very difficult, right? We have, you know, we haven't had, you know, off seasons with our families the way other reporters in other cities do because we were always covering a coaching search or a first mm -hmm. round pick or something. So tell me about Annie and, you know, how did you just knock it out of the park mm. in your finding Annie uh, and or you guys finding each other and, and how instrumental was she in just kind of 
keeping it all together through those years. Well, definitely got lucky that I was able to fool Annie into thinking that uh, I was worthy of her hand in marriage. Um, she's the best wife, honestly, that any man could ask for, but specifically in the sport that I played, the high stress situation, she was a college athlete at Wisconsin. She played basketball. So she understands the politics and the drama and the hard work and the mental anguish that you go through, especially when things are not going well. Um, and she was such a great rock to be able to come home to every night during my professional career because she understood like some days are just really hard at the office. And when you come home and before kids, especially like she may have been dying for me to come home to kind of let her into my world. But sometimes I'm not ready to do that because I had a bad day. I had a bad practice. I got yelled at and I feel like crap and I'm just not ready to do that. And I think she was so good at being able to give me that space and to be able to have that emotional intelligence to read me and my body language and understand, hey, there's times that I want to open up and then there's times that I'm just going to shut off and I just need to handle it myself because I'm pretty good at being able to like internalize things and comprehend them and then come out better on the other side. And then sometimes I need her. And I think she was really good at finding that balance. She understood that training camp was really tiring. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I just didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to talk. And she was cool with that. And I think there was a lot of wives that don't understand that they're like at home waiting for hubby to come home from practice. And then it's like, Hey, let's go. I haven't been doing anything all day and I'm ready. Like let's connect. And I think that's, it makes it a, a little bit challenging for a lot of guys. It really does. But I think her background as an athlete, having walked in similar shoes to mine, it was so good for me and for my own career to have that rock. Uh, and I'll never forget like my second to last season, I really struggled like mentally with the losing building up and then my knee injury, just not getting better. And I internalized it for a long time. Um, but then ended up kind of like starting to break down and I broke down on her on the way home from a game against the Patriots. And she knew that like, if I was really upset after a game, don't ask any questions. Cause I probably had a bad game. I may have had a penalty or gave up a sack or had some bad plays and don't ask about it. Don't be like, Hey honey, what's wrong? Because I might snap. But in this moment, she just knew like I was in tears and she knew like, Hey, this is one of those moments he needs me. And she was like, are you okay? Did you have a bad game? And then I opened up and like, just having that person that knows you on that level, I think is a tremendous asset and it helped build our relationship to the point where we were able to handle the transition from being an NFL player to retirement, from being an NFL player to being an NFL analyst and like the travel that that requires and the lifestyle at home and like adding a fourth child and like all the stresses that go on with the transition from being a pro athlete to not, which a lot of people struggle with a lot of relationships really struggle with kind of handling that identity change because it really is an identity change. And for my whole life, for professional athletes, entire life, they identified as a football player. And the day you retire, boom, it's over. Nobody else identifies you as a football player, even though you might still identify yourself as a football player, but you're a former football player and you're a fan, just like everybody else. And I think a lot of guys really struggle with that, but um, a big part of me being able to seemingly handle the transition from playing to not playing into retirement, I got to give the credit to Annie.
I, I wanted to dive into that a little bit more too, because you have opened up recently uh, about how this took an emotional toll on you. And that's something that, you know, 10 years ago, Joe, you know, we weren't really allowed to talk about that too much. You guys weren't really allowed to talk about that. I remember uh, that there were offensive linemen back in the day for the Cleveland Browns that would have panic attacks on the field. Mm. And it was so taboo. And I knew about them, but I had to sweep those under the rug because mm. you weren't really allowed to talk about emotional health and mental yeah. And, you know, I, I remember thinking, you know, oh, my gosh, would he admit this? And if you did admit it, it was not looked upon favorably, favorably back mm -hmm. then in this man's world, you know, this mm -hmm. alpha dog world that you guys are in. So if you can, uh, if you wouldn't mind just sharing with me, you know, tell me about what happened on that day on the way home from the Patriots game, you know, mm -hmm. when it just kind of all came to a head for you. Yeah, it's crazy sitting on the side of being a player now and being mostly a fan uh, with memories of my playing days, because Browns fans probably have dealt with the exact same feelings that I did when I was a player, because you are so invested in the team emotionally, financially, physically. Um, and you build this image in your head up over and over again of this is how we win. This is the route we're going to be able to take. And you convince yourself that, you're going to do it this year. Like, this is our year, right? I, I love the movie Major League, Major League Two. Like, even before I moved to Cleveland and got drafted by the Browns, I love that, right? I love that, the fans' perspective, and I think it really gives a good window into the mind of a fan that at the beginning of the season, you always build up why this is our year because that gives you a buy-in, and then you become invested and you become excited, and that's why you show up and you watch the games. And as a player, you do the same thing. Like, for 20 consecutive starting quarterbacks in my mind I had convinced myself this was the dude like he's he may not be what everybody thinks is going to be a franchise quarterback and the national people who don't know anything don't believe he can do it but this is what I've seen in practice this is the offense we're running and this is why he can do it well and, and you do those things because subconsciously you know it, that's what it takes to be able to get the most out of yourself. You have to believe that this is a championship roster that I need to be in championship form because my team's depending on me. And if you don't do that, you're not going to get the most out of yourself, whether it be the off season or training camp or during a game when it gets hard. So for 10 years, that's what I had done. Um, and in year 10, going into the Patriots game, um, I hate the Patriots. They always kick my ass. Uh, I hate Belichick, hate Brady, everything about them, right? Despise them. They had beaten us a couple years before we were in Foxborough. You'll remember this game. We were up by like two scores with just a few minutes left in the game. It was the game was over. And of course, Brady goes right down the field, scores a touchdown, gets a two point conversion, onside kick, goes down, touchdown, two point conversion, win the game. And like completely shattered my soul. So this was revenge for me. And going into the game, I thought we had a great game plan running the football. Um, I thought watching them on film, the scheme we had was going to be able to take advantage of what they don't do very well. And we didn't have great quarterback play or great offense that season. We went one in 15, so that's obvious. But in my mind, I built it up that we were going to find a way to beat Bill Belichick and it's going to be so sweet. And turns out we didn't. We actually were horrible, and they played a defense that we'd never seen before, classic Belichick moment. They played a 6-1 instead of their normal defense, and so 
their mismatch turned out to be in their favor when they switched what they did on defense. We got no double teams up front. We couldn't take advantage of our running game. We ran the ball for like 30 yards and we lost like 30 to seven. And it was devastating to me mentally because I had built it up where if I play well and we go out and do what we're supposed to, what we practice, we'll win. And I played a perfect game. There was literally no plays I would want back. And as an offensive lineman, that doesn't happen very often. Like I made it four or five Pro Bowls before I played a perfect game. Like it just doesn't happen. It's really hard to have eyes, hands, and feet in perfect position against another NFL player for 70 plays in a row. It's like very difficult. And so um, in this game, I played perfect and we still got our butts kicked. And I think the emotional understanding and realization that what I do has impact, but not a big impact positively. It can have a big impact negatively as an offensive lineman, but positively I can't influence the game like a quarterback or somebody that touches the football or even somebody on defense who can make huge plays and change the course of the game on defense. Like I have a small bit part and I can be consistent and I can be great. And that helps my team, but it can hurt my team way more than it can help it. And I think riding home with Annie and feeling hopeless and helpless in the midst of a season that was at that point, we hadn't won any games. And I had a knee that was falling apart that every week I was getting it drained on Monday and injected during the week. I couldn't even stand at practice. I couldn't even kneel at practice. My knee was so bad. I would literally just lay in the training room. I would either crutch or just drag my leg down the hall. Like it was right out of surgery the whole week. And then on Sunday morning, I would shoot it up and wrap it up and go out and play ball. I couldn't do any cardio because the bike would swell up my knee so much. So I would just swim. That's how I got into swimming. And so I felt like I was putting forth this enormous effort that was straining my body physically and now mentally, and I was getting nothing to show for it. And I think that was the moment where I broke down in the car and I just started crying. And Annie was like, are you okay? Did you have a bad game? I'm like, no, I was perfect. And it still didn't matter. And she was like, you should talk to somebody. And that's when I started reaching out to the Browns and they were awesome. They've got in-house psychologists that are just willing to talk to you and being able to talk with that person was all it took just a few sessions, just being able to open up and let them understand where I was coming from and give me a few strategies to kind of cope with that anxiety and the helpless feeling was really powerful for me. Um, and that's all it took. And then I was able to finish the season, played really well the rest of the season. Um, and I was able to like still focus on my job and trying to be perfect without allowing that to snowball into a hopeless feeling. Um, and I think that's why it's really cool. And I think it's really good for all athletes right now that people are willing to talk about the mental health side of it. And it's not taboo anymore because a lot of times, like in my situation, it's not about any great solution. That's some pie in the sky. Like sometimes it's just talking to somebody and maybe that's your wife. Maybe that's a girlfriend. Maybe that's just a psychologist, but it's okay to say that I'm not okay. And it's amazing when you just say that and you talk to somebody you feel better about it. And you're able to get over that hurdle. You're able to find a way around that obstacle. Uh, and I think it's making today's athletes better for it. And you know what, Joe, I think about, uh, you know, you talking about that. And then every day we have Miles Garrett stand up there and we have Joel Batonio. Uh, poor Joel Batonio is the new <laughs> Moments, right um That's to stand right. up there you know to keep making pro bowls to keep going out there and playing so well and then we make the poor guy stand up there and sort of be the the voice of uh trying to tell the fans that this is okay 
way and this is going to be better and you know we're gonna you know we feel good about this when you know when when it seems like sometimes everything is falling down around you do you think about that when you see those guys and do you have conversations with with joel about this because i think we're gonna have to start uh making sure that joel is is (laughs) you okay joel right i mean those talked about how it's taken a toll on them too yeah yeah, I talked to Joel a lot during the season. I talked to Miles a little bit because those are guys that I played with. Obviously, I'm really close with Joel because he was a rookie when I was there, and we kind of shepherded him through his first few years uh, in the NFL, and now he's had a Pro Bowl, nearly Hall of Fame career uh, under a lot of the same circumstances. Now their wins and losses have been a lot better, but I will say that just because they're winning more doesn't mean the stress or the anxiety or the emotional toll is any less because really this is – like the nerd in me, but I think of it like the emotional toll is sort of equal to the difference between what the expectations are and what the results are. And the expectations are a lot bigger right now with this team than the teams that I was on. Like anybody that followed the Browns in my last couple of seasons realized we weren't putting our best foot forward trying to win. We were saving a ton of salary cap space that we could have spent on players to help us win that year. And we were trading away top draft picks for future draft picks that we could have made our team a lot better. And so when you looked at our roster, which was mostly made up of first and second year players and not a lot of them high picks and even the high picks that we had were not great high picks. It turns out, I mean, everybody kind of knew that we weren't going to be that good. So the expectations weren't high. Now it's hard to go week in and week out and convince yourself. Yeah, this is the game plan we need that we're going to win with and then not win. Um, That takes an emotional toll, but I think, it may be just as difficult to have a team that you feel like is built to make the playoffs and then fall drastically short. Or even in the case of this year's team, like they were really, they were just a couple games away from making the playoffs. Like, and if you looked at earlier in the season, they blew some games that it's impossible to lose. Like the game that I was at uh, when I was um, inducted in the Browns legends club against the jets, it's impossible to lose that game. Like, I'm not blaming Nick Chubb. I'm blaming the situation. But if he just falls down instead of scoring a touchdown in that situation at the end, they win that game. If they don't let the other team recover an onside kick, which is almost impossible in today's NFL, if they don't miss an extra point, like you win those that, that game. And there was a number of games during the season like that. And so to feel like you were so close in a season that, yeah, you had a lot of things stacked against you with Deshaun being out the first part of the season, but Jacoby came in and played better football than anybody could have expected. And it was the pieces and parts around him that let the team down. And I think that can be an even bigger emotional drainer on an individual player like Joel, who's made another Pro Bowl and probably will be, I think, first team all pro this season. I think the NFL PA just came out with like their players vote and Joel was the best left guard in football, which he deserves to be because he is. And so when you're playing at that level, having that hopeless feeling, I think was the hardest thing for me. Cause if you're the quarterback and you're a first team, all pro, you know, your team's going to the playoffs. Like you dictate the success or failure of your team and not having that much control over it. I think it wears at you kind of like if you're a sculptor, just continually beating that block of marble. Like it just is cracking and the pieces are just crumbling off and eventually the whole thing just shatters. Uh, and so I've, tried to talk to Joel a lot and just from a relationship standpoint, cause we're good friends, but also like 
on the mental side of it and give him maybe some of the wisdom that I learned over the years. I'm glad he has you for that, for sure. Um, it's also time to start talking about uh, Joel in terms of mm. the Hall of Fame career that he's in the midst of having, don't you think? He's absolutely having it. And the the challenge right now for him is his performance is where it needs to be. Now he's got to stay that way for a while. Uh, because as you know, as a Hall of Fame voter, having three, four, five good seasons is great. But to be a Hall of Famer, to stack up your resume against guys that are in the Hall of Fame, which the comparisons are real. Like I, I, I've never been in that room and there's only very few people. I'm very jealous and envious of you that you get to be in that room and hear those conversations. But I'm sure... There's times when you're like, look, this guy's in the Hall of Fame and let's stack up their resumes. They're different generations, but let's look at their resumes. If this guy's a Hall of Famer, then my guy's a Hall of Famer. Um, And for Joel, he just needs to be able to get that longevity, you know, and a lot of that's going to be his ability to stay healthy because the performance is there. If he can continue to stay healthy, he'll be a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I uh, I really really hope so, and I I hope I mm-hmm. uh, get to be around long enough someday to uh, to also help him get into the Hall of Fame. That would be amazing. Um, I wanted to um, go back a little bit in time and reflect on a, a time that I I used to call them the juvenile Jays. Uh-huh. Um, it was Josh Gordon, Justin Gilbert, and Johnny Manziel. And it seemed like every t- every time uh, I turned around, I had to be writing uh, some other crazy story about the uh, about the juvenile Jays. So I'm just wondering, do you have you know what what was that time period like, and um, and do you have you know any kind of a, a Johnny Manziel story or a story about mm-hmm. one of those guys that you know that you really haven't you know really been able to tell before. <laughs> Uh, my story is that at times we call them the, the jackass Jays, not the juvenile because they acted like jackasses sometimes. Uh, you know, I really like Johnny as a person. And I think that was probably his biggest downfall because he was a really awesome, nice person. That was a lot of fun, but he didn't know how to say no. Uh, he didn't make football the priority enough. And I think if you want to be a great NFL player, especially as a quarterback, you got to look at your priorities in life and say in a completely honest situation where the number one thing in my life is football. And I know a lot of people like to say, Oh, it's family. And then football, like, okay. Yes. In the end, if it's life or death, you pick family. However, where you're spending your time and your energy and your effort, if you want to be a great quarterback needs to be football first, because you're going to spend 12, 13 hours a day at the facility And when you go home, you're not turning it off. You're watching more film and that's all you think about. You obsess about it. Look at Tom Brady. He's the greatest of all time because he made football his life. And I would argue that just about every great quarterback in the NFL has made football their life. Uh, That's why it's really hard for him to retire eventually because they don't know what else to do because football has been their life. And Johnny didn't ever make football his priority. Um, And so he never ascended above just being a talented college player who could win outside the pocket. Um, Josh Gordon obviously had his issues off the field with uh, the drugs and the alcohol and testing positive so many times in the NFL, you just couldn't get on the field. But when he was there, he was a great teammate. He had amazing ability, unbelievable hands, great speed, and he was deceptive. I'll never forget going against the Patriots. It was one of those wow moments he was going against Aqib Tlaib. He ran just a little bit of a slant. It was in Foxborough. 
We threw him the ball. He caught the slant. Oh, no, it wasn't Aqib Tlaib. I don't think it may have been Revis. Um, I'll have to do some research on that. But either way, the defender was a great all-pro cornerback. He had an angle on him, and Josh just ran right by him. And it looked like the defender was running faster, but Josh was running way faster because his stride length was so long. And I remember talking to the defensive backs, and they would say that Josh Gordon, he'll be running at you, and you don't know how fast to backpedal because his legs are not moving that fast, but he's gaining tons of ground. So he's moving so much quicker than you can realize. And I think we took advantage of that speed the year that Norv Turner was our offensive coordinator a lot because we always teased that Norv Turner loved the play. 999, double nod, triple bomb, bazooka, throw it down the field because that's all we ever did was drop back seven steps and chuck it as far as we could. But Gordon was the perfect receiver for that because he would just run by guys, especially early on in the game before defensive backs understood the speed of the game and they could conceptualize the difference between what I'm seeing in practice and what I'm seeing with Josh Gordon on Sundays. Uh, and that's when he had that great season. Um, so it's a shame to me that Gordon has yet to be able to tap into that potential because he came into the NFL so young and, you know, every now and then you'll hear a story about, Oh, he's with Seattle this year and they're giving him a chance. And I just, I don't know if that'll ever be something that can come to fruition because he's had so many opportunities and it's never worked out in his favor that even though he has a ton, ton of talent, like he's fighting time right now and and he's running out of sand in the hourglass um justin gilbert on the other hand he had a lot of talent but he just was never a team guy never cared much about football and it was hard even from day one like he never connected with his teammates and um it was pretty easy to see that it was not long for the nfl game because there was really not a fit in any way shape or form with him and his teammates and him in football and him and pretty much anything um, so that, that was one of those head scratchers. Like, didn't anybody talk to this dude before we drafted him? Like, didn't anybody do any homework at Oklahoma state? Like I wouldn't have taken too many conversations with the coaching staff there to be like, Hey, do you think this guy's worthy of a top five pick? Oh, okay. Thank you. Thanks for your, thanks for your time. He's off our board. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, I think that all of that stuff had to have added to you know, that buildup of stress over the years that you finally felt that day in, in year 10, because there was so much upheaval, so much turnover, so much dysfunction, so much change, right? I mean, this wasn't like, you know, Ben Roethlisberger playing in, in Pittsburgh or, you know what I mean? I mean, don't you think all of that stuff just added to the craziness of it all? Yeah, not not having a franchise quarterback, it hurts your team so much in so many levels, not only from a performance standpoint, but from a stability of the franchise standpoint, because that's always the thing that everybody falls back on. Like, Hey, defense is not playing well or O-line, or we don't have a run game, whatever. No problem. We'll fix a couple things here or there, but we've always got that guy under center and we never did. And, and the worst part was not only did we not have that guy, but we had multiple iterations almost every season of people that were false messiahs. Hey, we're going to come in and they're going to save the Browns and only to not save the Browns. And that two-year stretch right there when we drafted uh, Johnny and Justin and then Cam Irving and Danny Shelton, like four first-round picks in two years. If you look back historically, the rate of success on first-round picks is about 50% quarterback or any other position but typically even if you don't find a franchise quarterback or an all pro like you're going to find some quality starters and some talent or at the very least they're going to be additive to your roster but in this case johnny justin yam and danny were they were fair players 
they weren't additive really though um to your roster as far as do they make your team better it was really hard and, and certainly on fans to believe in those four guys and those two draft classes only to have them turn out to be much much less than you expected it was really tough and as a player you're like man if if we can't get this right if we can't get first round picks right how are we going to get anything right yeah and we made you answer for all of that <laughs> right. thanks for that we yeah sorry about that <laughs> um at least we uh we named you the good guy a number of times and uh we did give you a player of the year and i'm sure you were happy to see that joel got player of the year yeah that was cool this year because we put our heads together and i, I remember uh back in the day we were like hey you know, you think about the running backs and the, you know, the quarterbacks, the defensive ends, like Joe Thomas needs to be the player of the year here, right? Okay, he's going to be going to the Hall of Fame. Let's uh, let's at least have him up on that little plaque one time, right? <laughs> so, you know, right? Sometimes you, you, you know, you forget what the right thing to do is. When you look back over the list of quarterbacks, was it 22 that you blocked for? Yeah, I think it was 22 that I blocked for, and I think there was 20 starters in there because Josh Johnson came in famously okay. in, in the game uh, week 17 against the Steelers where I had to introduce myself to him in the huddle. And then I want to say Charlie Whitehurst also played quarterback for us, but I don't think he ever started. Um, and then I think Ter- I don't think we counted Terrell Pryor and Josh Cribbs, even though they played the role of quarterback in some games due to yes. injury or due to uh, just the scheme we were running, but I don't think they're counted. So somewhere, somewhere over 22. <laughs> wow. When you look back over that long, long list, and do you have the, one of those t-shirts or jerseys, by the way? If anybody, I may need to get one. <laughs> you have to get one of those. Uh, but when you look back over the, the list, was there anybody that you felt like, you know, maybe had a chance to be really good and because of the upheaval and the circumstances on the team, uh, just wasn't supported in the way that he could have been and it just didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, like I said, I'd always convinced myself that in the, in that moment, like that was the guy, but with the benefit of hindsight and kind of looking how all those careers have unfolded, you know, Derek Anderson played great for us. And I think had we supported him better and maybe given him more opportunity, he could have potentially flourished into a legitimate long-term starter. I don't know if he would have ever taken himself to like consistent Pro Bowl franchise quarterback level, um, but definitely like top 15 in the NFL level because he had the arm, he had the brains, he could make the throws. Now he wasn't real mobile, but like it doesn't really matter all the time if you can throw the football. Look at Peyton, look at Tom Brady, look at Drew Brees, long line of plenty of guys that don't have that mobility, but they've got the arm and they've got the brains. Um, but I, I would say, you know, Colt McCoy was young when he was with us. And, and I think we've seen since then, he's kind of been a journeyman backup. Um, but he's had a lot of success when he has had opportunities to go out there. And he's another guy that I, I see along the lines of like a Drew Brees, like short, undersized, but extremely smart, extremely accurate. And you build the right offense around him and you allow him to use his brain and his accuracy. And like a little bit like Tua has done in Miami, you build an offense like that for Colt, um, which sometimes it's easier said than done. Like, you know, as fantasy football people, it's easy to build this stuff. But in the NFL, there's a lot of levers that have to be pulled correctly that have no doing of your own in order to set a franchise up to be able to do something like that. But I think if you put Colt in the team that the Dolphins have right now with that type of scheme, I think 
he could have been really successful and could have been the guy in Cleveland. Yeah, I, I kind of thought so too. And uh, did you go down to Camp Colt in, in Austin that, that year? No, you were not there. I never did. You know, that was all skill guys. I think Alex Mack may have gone down if I remember. And he like said it was the biggest waste of time because all he's doing is snapping the football <laughs> to the quarterbacks, which I get it. I spent plenty of time with Colt in the offseason hunting and just hanging out with him because our wives were best friends and we were really close. Uh, so I didn't need to stand out there on the hot turf down in Austin and watch those guys <laughs> catch footballs. Yeah, I thought he could have. I thought he could have been good, too. I I really saw some things in him, but I, I really do believe that um, that that whole story of his, you know, his dad, you know, telling me that the Browns should not have put him back into the game with his concussion. I, you know, that sort of, uh, you know, that seemed to seal his fate a little yeah. bit, unfortunately, because I don't think it should have. But mm. unfortunately, I think it did. Um, how about two more questions for you real quick, if you don't mind. And that mm. is um, Jed Wills. How do you think Jed is doing? I know you've helped him. And what is the outlook for Jed? He's had an up and down season. And when I watch him, I see that the technique has improved significantly to the point where from a technique standpoint and from a physical standpoint, there's no difference between him and the best offensive tackles in the NFL. The difference right now is mental with him is finding a way to be consistently great because that's what it takes to be a great left tackle. You have five plays that stink in a game could be five sacks. I mean, you could literally lose the game for the team with five bad plays and it doesn't matter if you had 65 pancake blocks or even picked up your defender put him into a ball and dribbled him down the field on every play and your running back had 200 yards rushing behind you it's about the bad plays when you lose focus and I saw good play from him at the beginning of the season and it seemed like the second half he lost focus a lot more and it led to a lot more of those holding calls, those bad plays where he just puts himself in a bad situation and then he can't recover. Now, I didn't grade every single play and I, I haven't looked at his grade sheet to compare every single game the whole season. This is just from a perspective of watching the games and watching him on the field. Um, but I think he needs to have a serious discussion with himself this offseason and say, how great do I want to be? How important is this for me? And am I willing to take the next step as a left tackle mentally? Because I've got all the tools right now in the tool belt, and now it's just about pulling out the right tool at the right time and making sure that on every play I realize, in my mind, this is life and death. This play right now is the most important thing in my world, and I need to make sure that I'm ready for every single possible outcome so that I can be at my best. Because if he does that, he'll be one of the best left tackles in the NFL. If he doesn't, I don't know what the future will hold for him because it is a weird position, a little bit like quarterback. There's not enough out there, out there that can do the, the job. There's not 32 left tackles that should be starting in the NFL, just like there's not 32 quarterbacks that are starting in the NFL. And it's not like you can just take a guard or a center or even a right tackle and throw them out there and get the success that you're getting right now from your left tackle. However, left tackles are paid a lot of money. So when he becomes a free agent, are the Browns going to be willing to pay a guy who's not consistent enough for the position? However, what's the trade-off? Like the replacement, unless you get really lucky, probably won't play as well as him. So I think for both the team and the player, it'd be really good if he got serious, recommitted himself this offseason and understood what it takes to be great and made that commitment and became consistently great. 
Will you help him with that? Or can you help him with that? Do you have to wait to be reached out to, to, to do that? Or what would be your involvement? Yeah. So him and I, we talk from time to time about those things. And I cherish those moments when I'm in there in training camp and I get a chance to work with him one-on-one. But like I said, it's, it's not about like learning the technique anymore. It's about figuring out how to be consistent with that. And that comes down to him first and foremost. And then the people that are in the room with him every single day, uh, those are going to be the guys that are the most important with giving him the tools and the motivation and the vision to see how important this is, not just the day, but the play. Okay. And I said, I only had two more, but I actually have two, still two more, if you don't mind. So I'll try to go, if you sure. have another, just a couple minutes no um, problem. before we wrap up the, the next one is, is uh, I remember uh, during your retirement period, you had mentioned back then that you, you thought maybe you were having some memory problems or memory issues. And it just, I listen to you all the time on NFL network. And it just doesn't seem to me like you have mm, any thank you. memory problems. <laughs> whatsoever. So I'm just wondering, you know, where does that stand? Uh, How did that all go? And do you think that that was just, you know, stress or whatever Mm -hmm. was going on in your Mm -hmm. life? Well, I still struggle with a lot of the same issues. And I think it's really difficult to know what it is associated with like, and so I look at my mom, she's in her late 60s. She can't remember my name. But that's been her whole life. Like she calls me Billy and she calls Billy, my other brother, Joseph. And like, she calls our grand, the grandkids by different names. And she forgets stuff that we talked about the day before, but that's been, she's been like that her whole life. And that's how I am. A lot of times I really have a hard time with names. Uh, I've like, I've been really lucky because my wife and I and our kids, we've traveled a lot overseas and we'll go to like new country and I'll really try to focus on learning some of these new words and language and stuff like that. And I'll forget how to say hello in French. And I've been in France for 10 days. And so in my mind, I'm like, my short-term memory just doesn't, it doesn't grab. I have a really hard time with names. So when I, when I am on TV, when I am on radio, I have found good processes for me to help me remember that I know in the moment I'm going to forget the simplest names. I'm going to forget Peyton Manning's name. In my mind, I can see his face. I can think of the play. I can regurgitate the play. I know every freckle on his face, every wrinkle, but I can't remember his name. So in those moments when I'm doing those shows, I've come up with good process, just like during my career, like I had to take a lot of notes. I had to write stuff down. Like that's how I remember that. And that's how I can figure out stuff in the moment. And it's the same thing when I'm on TV, knowing that like I'm bad with names, I'm bad with remembering specific things, but concepts I'm really good at. Um, And so it's difficult for me to know, is it because of the hits that I took during the NFL that I can't remember a lot of this stuff, especially the short-term stuff, the detail, I can't learn a new language, like no matter how much effort I put into it, I forget like really easy, basic stuff. Or is it because I've got a lot of stuff going on in my life? Is it because I meet a lot of people and I have like a lot of different columns and lanes that I live in? I live in the Browns lane. I live in the Badgers lane. I live in the NFL lane. I live in the NFL media lane. Like I live in the kids lane and their school and their kids. Like there's a lot of stuff going on. Right. And as you get older and as your kids get older, like the stuff just keeps growing. And as you take on more jobs and mission barbecue, and now I'm involved with a youth performance center in Wisconsin called sports advantage, like all these different things, they keep adding up and you're trying to remember them all. How much of 
not being able to remember some of that is because of football. How much is it genetic? And how much is it just you got a lot of stuff going on, right? And so it's difficult for me to kind of put my finger on it. Obviously, I'm keeping track of it. But also at the same time, I don't want it to become a self-fulfilling prophecy in my head. Oh, played 11 years in the NFL, played 15 years of college and pro football, a lot of heads, head injuries, a lot of hits to my head. Surely I'm bound for this. And just because I forgot my keys one time or, you know, I walked into a room and I forgot what I was going there for, don't automatically assume it was football because then now you've built this like downward spiral in your head like oh it's the football that's my memory i can't do this and then you're depressed and then your memory gets worse and like i don't want to do that i want to be aware of it i want to take inventory but i want to realize that there's a lot of factors at play here yeah like i always like i always tell my children over and over again well they now are of course 26 24 and 22 <laughs> but whenever they try to tell me something about the way something is i always say well, flip the script, talk, you know, <laughs> speak it the other way. Right. Yeah. So start saying, I would tell them to, you know, start saying my short-term memory is excellent. Yes. I remember, I remember everyone's name. That's right. Uh, so there you go. That's You're my exactly old. right. And to your point, um, I learned so much about the mind when I was playing football because it was awesome having a lot of head coaches. The one benefit of being crappy is you do get a lot of guys <laughs> with a lot of ideas that come through. And some of the coaches would bring in people that were experts in the mind and the brain and how you learn. And it was really fun because I took that seriously. And then since I've retired, done a lot of deep dives, my background in yoga early on and meditation, and then really getting interested in how the mind works. The mind doesn't understand the word no. It doesn't understand the negative. So if you right. say, don't miss this kick, don't miss this putt, your brain thinks, miss this putt, miss this yes. kick. Exactly. So if you want to do something, you can't yep. speak in the negative to yourself. Self, negative self-talk becomes self-fulfilling because your brain doesn't right. understand that. So you always have to talk to yourself in the positive. And I think for kickers, like when I'm thinking about Cade York and his consistency, and this is actually, I learned from Phil Dawson, like very early on in my career, where he was like the coach that we had, I'm not going to name their name, but would, would always say, he would put stuff up on film and say, don't do this. And Phil's like, it's the worst thing that you can possibly do as a coach because everybody sees it in their mind. And now their mind is thinking, do that. No matter what you say, no matter if I'm saying, don't do that, your mind only understands to do it. And so I think that that's, exciting for me now that I look to start coaching my own kids is like, I understand how the brain learns so much better. And I understand how important it is to keep everything in the positive because that's how your brain learns and grows. And if you go in the negative route, you're just telling yourself to do things you don't want to do. Yes. I'll give you one super small example. I used to walk around my house all the time. We're so busy, right? We don't have time to, I used to walk around thinking, Oh my God, this house is a mess. Now <laughs> I walk around and I look around and I say, we, we are clean, neat, and organized, right? I don't go. want the word mess or get into my brain, right? I mean, you just right. have, like you said, it is so much of it is just controlling your thoughts and your mind. Mm -hmm. and it That's is right. such a big part of life. I'm always uh, drilling that into the heads of my poor children, but it really does. <laughs> um, the, the last question that I had for you um, is about Deshaun Watson. I mean, wow, what a big... Uh, what a big and controversial acquisition for the Cleveland Browns. How do you feel about it? And after watching him play, what, what do you think the outlook is? Yeah. Watching him the last few games of the season, I think he played six games for the Browns this year. You see those glimpses of what he was 
when he was in Houston. And I think for the first maybe three games, he saw a steady improvement. There was a little plateau. And then I think what we saw maybe, especially in Pittsburgh, was him not being fully comfortable within the pocket, whether that be the scheme or just seeing the defense or the routes, the concepts, the offense that they were running, but he was looking to scramble a little too quickly. And if you're always looking to scramble, defenses have a full menu of stuff that they can call to be able to put you in a disadvantage if you're always getting outside the pocket. And now it makes it really hard on your offensive line. It makes it challenging to your receivers if you're always leaving the pocket before you should. So I think one of the big things that I want to see from Deshaun, and it sounds like listening to him and Kevin's press conferences after the season, this is going to be the point of emphasis throughout the offseason, is figuring out what is the offense that Deshaun feels the most comfortable in, watching the film, and building that offense and building that comfort level from the inside out, from Deshaun, through the offensive line, the running game, into the receivers. Because I know that the great quarterback that we saw in Houston, the top five NFL quarterback is in him. It's just about a matter of bringing it out and making it consistently him. And I think to me, it starts with making those plays in rhythm in the pocket to his receivers. And, you know, fortunately, Joe, you don't have to be the one standing up there at your locker telling us (laughs) that this is going to go well next year, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Poor Joel has to do that. (laughs) So, um, no, glad you're there for him. Glad, uh, glad that you're around the team. You know, you're such a a special person. We've, we've already started talking about, uh, what the statue is going to look like (laughs) for you outside the stadium. And, uh, and again, I'm 100% honored, honored to be able to be in a room, uh, with 48 other voters, uh, that we are going to be voting on you, hopefully, hopefully, as a first ballot Hall of Famer, which you so richly deserve. And again, mm-hmm. in Tony's mind and my mind, we believe, truthfully, that you're one of those guys where you just stand up there and you just say Joe Thomas and like you just that's it. That's all you, you have to say. <laughs> I don't know if Tony has, you know, the guts to do that, uh, but that's how we feel about you. You know, that that's what you do for like, a, you know, for a Brett Favre or a Peyton Manning. And we feel like you're in that category. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure that we're going to need the whole five minutes. We'll, we'll have to see how that goes. Um, but, you know, certainly you are a first ballot hall of famer. I hope it goes your way. Uh, if, if it doesn't for some crazy, crazy reason, which I don't anticipate that if it doesn't, it's going to happen. So don't worry about it. Don't stress about it. But, um, but, you know, congratulations for being a finalist and thank you for, you know, the person that you are and the player that you've been and everything that you mean to this community. Awesome. I I appreciate those kind words, MK. And thank you so much. It's been an honor being able to work with you for now 15 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an even greater honor that you guys are standing up on my behalf to try to open those doors to all-time greatness in the Hall of Fame for the NFL. So I thank you for the work you've done there. And thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for joining me. And hopefully, hopefully, I will see you on Honors Night at the Super Bowl. It's a date. Our thanks to Joe Thomas for taking the time to sit down with Mary Kay Cabot for that interview. Uh, We'll be back with a Hey Mary Kay edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast on Wednesday. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five-star review and also on Spotify. For Mary Kay Cabot, I'm Dan Robbie. Thanks for listening, everybody.